get more opportunities and and uh, you know I, I think I think being patient and uh, and allowing 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 the experience to happen I think is is a, is would be a really important important thing I would try to remind myself. The second thing I would try to remind myself of is the importance of balance. You know, balance in your professional life, balance in your personal life. And, uh, you know, for a lot of the reasons I just told you, I mean, I got married two weeks after I graduated from West Point, went to Germany, and the first time I was a brand new wife. You know. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got General Votel, a retired four-star over Central Command, and and many others, a Special Operations Command, Joint Special Operations Command. So, General, for people who aren't familiar with your background, what, what are maybe some of the highlights that I didn't just cover there? Okay, well, thank you, Jess. It's great to be with you. Thanks very much. So, so I had, uh, as you mentioned, I had the opportunity to finish my career as the commander of, of uh, U.S. Central Command, and then prior to that, have been U.S. Special Operations Command and Joint Special Operations Command be- before that. Uh, you know, I think what I would just highlight to people is, I, you know, I began my career after I graduated from West Point as an infantry officer, and I went through most of the normal assignments that people that are familiar with the Army or familiar with the military would expect of them infantry guy and served in both conventional and in special operations organizations and had an opportunity to go back and forth and and then was just very very fortunate to you know have, have some great opportunities along the line that allowed me to really get in and serve beside some great people and some really wonderful organizations and kept me going uh, kept me going forward but I'm very much a generalist uh, when it comes to this and and uh, just uh, really enjoyed my 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 opportunity to serve yeah so now as CEO for Benz, Business Executives for National Security, for people not familiar with Benz, can you talk about the mission and, and your role there? Yeah, sure. So first off, I, I should tell you, uh, Benz, as you, as you mentioned, Business Executives for National Security, it's a, uh, it's a national nonprofit made up of just under 500 business executives across the country. And it was formed back in 1982. And it was formed by a gentleman by the name of Stanley Weiss. And Stanley was a uh, was a mining executive. He's still, he's still with us today. And he had, he had a big network and he had a real interest in national security, although he was a businessman. And um, during this period, the, the Reagan administration was working through some of the discussions on nuclear command and control. And and through his network, Stanley uh, offered some perspectives from a business, from a business uh, point of view on how you manage risk and consequences for in, uh, in terms of that and found it to be very, very helpful, as did our government partners. And, and out of that, Benz was, was born. And so the mission that Stanley undertook back in 1982 pretty much remains the same mission that we execute today, and that is to bring best, best business practices practices and expertise to national to US government national security issues. We do that a variety of different different ways. We do it through travel and, and interaction between our members and, and people from the government. We do it through specific projects we work. We do it through intellectual leadership, taking on some responsibility on ourselves and investigating in key areas and, and using our platform as a to 
to kind of create a call to action and and uh, to cause some change in these particular areas. Uh, so there's a variety of different things that we do. The important thing is we don't sell anything and we don't take any money from the government. So these are business executives that come from a variety of different business sectors. And by the way, most of them are not from the space and defense industries. Uh, really, 95% of our of our people come from sectors of sectors of business outside of that. But they really care about the country, and they really care about the direction, and they understand this really important nexus between national security and prosperity. That uh, both of these uh, one contributes to the other, and and really recognize that, and and so are very very supportive of that. As I mentioned, we're a completely member-driven organization. We're completely dependent upon our members. They provide the talent. They provide the treasure. They provide the time with that. And I manage a relatively small staff that that tries to focus all that energy in the right direction. So it's it's really enjoyable. When I was in uniform, I had uh, I had the opportunity to have Ben's executives come and come and do some work for me on a couple of different occasions. And so I had a very positive uh, impression of the organization beforehand. And, and I'm just very, very glad now to be in here as their, as the CEO and, and president and an opportunity to serve the nation in another way. That's great. So if people want to learn more about it, or maybe they want to look at getting involved, wh- where's the best place for them? Well, the best place to go is is to the internet, and we've got a, got a good, updated, interactive uh, website that uh, provides a lot of information uh, about Benz. And there's a there's a there's an opportunity there if you want to receive more information, then you can you can do that. And we just ask for a little bit of information, and, and then some representatives from our membership team will reach out and follow up with you. We get a lot of our members through other members, and I think an important way to think of Benz is it's a network. It's a network of business executives coast to coast, north to south. And and uh, so the majority of people that join our organization really are, come from other member referrals. But we do have a lot of people that also just come to our come to our website and heard about the organization and heard something about it and want a little bit more information and they're able to do it that way. So that's I think the easy the easiest way to do it if they if they don't know somebody who's in the organization. You know, well that's how we got connected here. One of the the guys who's been the CEO of our charity that our listeners have heard a lot about, Child Rescue that combats child trafficking, was an operator actually underneath of you while you were commander of Joint Special Operations Command. And uh, he had heard of Ben's and had good things about to say about it, which is how we found out about you guys in the first place. So it's it's really it's a very unique organization and they've undertaken a number they even though know, we do big projects and small projects. And, uh, you know, if you think back, you know, after the after the wall came down at the end of the Cold War here and, you know, as we were kind of looking at the so-called peace dividend and uh, and realigning things, Ben's took a leadership position in, in something we called base realignment, the base realignment commission. BRAC, which was about shutting down installations in the United States and overseas. And uh, as you can imagine, this is, a, this is a pretty sensitive thing, sensitive with our partners overseas, sensitive with different states. But the, the business executives came into that to help our government partners devise a plan, figure out a strategy for talking to members of Congress, to local leaders, other things here so they could actually implement uh, implement this. So Ben's does, uh, does all kinds of things. We do big things like BRAC and we do smaller things that uh, kind of fly below the radar, but are really important to government partners that are, that are looking for some, looking for some help. That's great. So for people, again, maybe not as familiar with your background, can you cover what years you were in charge of central command 
and and what that included and kind of what the main theaters that you were engaged sure. in at that time? Yeah. So so I, I was the commander of U.S. Central Command from, from about March of 2016 to March of 2019, kind of a normal three-year tour of duty. That's about what our combatant commanders do. And this, this the area of responsibility is a 20-country area that basically extends from Egypt to Pakistan and from Kazakhstan to Yemen. And it includes uh, a lot of the places that, that we unfortunately read about in the paper, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, uh, all these places where there's uh, where there, we, we see a lot, of, a lot of conflict and a lot of trouble. All that is kind of concentrated in that uh, particular area. But it's an extraordinarily interesting area, and it really is really is, is composed of really three 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 or four subparts here. You've got kind of the Levant, which is Jordan and uh, and Lebanon, and to, to some extent the Syria and and in parts of Af- uh, Iraq. And then you've got the kind of the Gulf region, you know, and we've seen a lot about that in the news here lately with some of our Gulf partners uh, reestablishing or establishing relationships with Israel. So that's the, the Gulf states, Kuwait, Bahrain, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, Oman, and then you've kind of got the Central and South Asian states. So Pakistan and Afghanistan, Pakistan being in South Asia, and then you've got the former Soviet republics of Central Asia that are another part of it. So you've got, it's a very diverse area, culturally, language-wise, population-wise. Population is extraordinarily young there, 40 to 50% under the age of 27. And that's one of the fastest growing areas in the, in the world. But it also is an area where there's, there's very deep underlying currents of instability, whether it is corruption, whether it's poor governance, whether it is disenfranchisement of populations, whether it is the toxic sectarian narrative that plays out between Sunni and Shia, between Israel and the Arabs, uh, between Turkey and the Kurds. And so uh, it is an area of, of great opportunity, but also great of great tension and great instability. Uh, but it's an area that's been important to our nation for a long time. You know, this year, 2020, marks the 75th anniversary of when Franklin Roosevelt met with the first Saudi king aboard the USS Quincy near the end of World War II. And they they had a meeting, and it was the only meeting they ever had, because FDR FDR died just a, a few weeks or months after that. And uh, but it cemented this relationship. It began this relationship that is that has endured for seventy five years for good and for good or better. And uh, and we we continue to have important national security interests in the region that we have to pay attention to. You know, um, just thinking about how many of our audience members are, you know, they're trying to innovate within corporate or they're you know trying to their investment fund managers trying to decide where to allocate capital or their startup or entrepreneur trying to build an organization in, in a time that feels very uncertain with COVID and less of a, less of a grasp on, you know, what they feel like is reliably going to happen next. And you've had, you know, you've dealt with such uncertainty, you know, commanding not just CENTCOM, but SOCOM and JSOC and, you know, our, our friend in common, Al Buford, who's been on this show talking about your time at 75th Rage Regiment, where he enjoyed working with you so much. And I just wonder, what do you feel like are some of the principles that have served you best over that career in dealing with uncertainty when when uh, mission success is on the line? 
Well, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, there's a couple of different ways of looking at this. You know, I think there are some basic leadership things that, I, you know, that have really been, you know, were clarified to me over the course of, you know, a 39-year career. And then I think there are some, you know, just some basic ways of operating here that that were really important to me. So let me just start with a couple of couple of basic leadership approaches that that I've, I've kind of come to come to embrace over the course of my career. First and foremost, I think you got to trust your own instincts. You know, it's really important to know yourself and know what your weaknesses are, know what your strengths are, where you're going with things. Uh, but it's also really important to just trust your instincts. And that, that becomes very, very important when, you, when you're talking to lots of people and you're trying to look at a situation, you're trying to assimilate a lot of information. For people that have been around and have worked on a lot of things, you gain a lot of experience in doing all that. And, and I, think, I think it's important to trust your instincts. And I always try to encourage people to do that. I mean, if you inherently feel something is not right, I have to tell you, it probably isn't. And, and and vice versa. If it feels like it is right, then it probably is. Um, that's not very scientific. I recognize that. But, you know, again, as a guy who's kind of a generalist uh, and in, in dealing and taking in a lot of input and stuff like that, I, I think you really have to, you have to, you have to really have to embrace that, I think, and, 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 and respect your own instincts as you look at these complex situations. Take on a lot of information and get a lot of feedback from people. But it's really important. Second thing is, I, I think you really have to be a you have to be a trust builder, and you really have to embrace this idea of mutual trust uh, with everybody you're dealing with. And uh, you know, as one of my one of my good friends and mentors used to always remind us, Admiral Bill McRaven uh, used to always remind us, you you cannot surge trust in a time of crisis. That has to be done in advance. You can't you can't wait till you got a problem and then and then expect that people are going to come on board because you're trying to be trustworthy towards them. This has to be done over over a period of time. And you do it by investing in relationships, uh, and you do it by very effective, transparent communications to people, and doing it over a period of time. You know, it, and it's not just enough for it was never just enough for me to have a relationship with somebody. I had to have my subordinates had to have relationships as as well. So you have to, you have to be a relationship builder and, and, and it's through those that you begin to build trust in people. And then I think you have to be a, you have to be a transparent and you have to be an effective and a transparent communicator as you work through these periods of uncertainty. You know, I, I, I always had a couple of principles that I tried to emphasize to my folks when I was at SOCOM or JSOC or SOCOM or, or CENTCOM here. And that is, that first off, we don't want people guessing about what we're doing. We want to tell them what we're doing. When people are guessing about it, then they think you're hiding something and you're not doing it. You're not. You're not. You're not serving the the, the better purpose here in that. And so, you know, I, I've 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 learned to be as as transparent and open a communicator as I can. And again, I, this isn't anything original myself. I mean, I learned this from from the master, Stan McChrystal. I mean, this was, he embraced this whole idea of, uh, of open, flat communications. And, and we saw how it transformed, you know, kind of the, the special operations community, particularly the, the CT portion of the, of the special operations community. And it was, it was absolutely critical. So you have, to, you have to embrace this idea of, of communicating until you're almost uncomfortable with it. And every now and then, Something might go awry, and you might get bit in the butt over something. But I, but in my experience, that happened rarely. And and the benefit, uh, the risk of sharing information, you know, 
was always outweighed by the benefit that 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 you got by having people informed and, and trustworthy. And so when you do the, both of those things right there, your your relationship building and your your communicating effectively, you're really building the trust that is that is really needed. And then I think the third component on this is uh, something that I call feedback loops, and and this is trying to you know as you work through situations of uncertainty is is what I think you're trying to do, at least what I was always trying to do in these situations, was I was always trying to make sure that everybody up and down the chain of command, left and right, that we had um, shared awareness of what was happening, shared alignment, so we kind of understood it the same way, generally, and then we had shared action. So there was an expectation of what was going to happen in these situations. And we did this through this idea of feedback loops. And that, that and a feedback loop is nothing more than the continuous communication chain uh, between, between different levels of command or leadership in a corporation or whatever it happens to be up and down so that people are sharing information you know one of the one of the techniques that we tried to do and encourage my folks was you know hey you you got to communicate but a lot of times people want to wait till they understand the whole situation and then communicate and and in and, and in situations of uncertainty that's not good enough you got to you got to you got to build a picture for people over time and you got to be communicating along the way and when you do that then people understand that with secretary mattis all the time secretary mattis and the, and the chairman of the joint chiefs general dunford all the time as we dealt with situations in the middle east where hey this is what we're seeing here's how we're kind of understanding it i'm not ready to make a recommendation to you on anything but i want you to know that this is kind of how we're seeing the situation here and and so what we were trying to do is we were trying to create this shared shared awareness, shared alignment, shared action up and down the line. So then when something happens, then people go, yeah, okay, I, I knew I knew that was, I knew we were dealing with this and, and I've, I've got you, I'm, I'm covering you with this. We're, we're holding the risk at a high level. So people at the lowest competent level can uh, can actually make decisions and act in their in you know in the best interest of the organization. So that that's kind of just I think how I kind of how I kind of think through that. Well, I I really like that list, and I'd love to maybe dive into a few more of those details. You know, I think the first one that comes up if we're working backwards from the list is I love this idea of the ongoing communication, and I think about. How, how much an absence of information invites people to think the worst or assume the worst or accuse the worst or whatever, right? So I love you setting the example of the Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chiefs. My question for you maybe is, in an organization that is, you know, one of the most respectful organizations that we have in America these days, right? How do you encourage junior officers or enlisted folks to communicate up when there is, there can be such a fear of personal reputation or, or like anxiety about, will this make me look bad that I don't know the answer? I'm wondering just any advice of either what you did or just advice for the rest of us on how we can encourage people to not be as worried about their image and instead follow that example you set. Well, I think this, I guess, has a lot to do with kind of the building the culture and the command climate and the, what we, you know, what we would term in the military, the kind of the command climate, the environment in which you operate. I mean, first and foremost, what you got to avoid doing is biting somebody's head off when they, when they, when they try to provide you some, some thoughts or give you an opinion, or, you know, you ask, Hey, what do you think about this situation? And the, and the, the, 
the, the person gives you a response and then you immediately push back on it well then you then you've kind of worked you've kind of worked against yourself in terms of getting getting I mean, that's kind of the antithesis of feedback loops the idea is for people to feel confident and trusted in terms of that so you have to create an environment uh, in which you in which you do that and, and there's different ways of doing that you know when I when I traveled around and, and I'm not I'm not unique in this I think most military leaders do this they you know one of the funnest things I always did when I went, when I visited into the region was have lunch with troops. And uh, I'm, I'm telling you, you can learn so much over the course of a sandwich or a, or a lunch about what's going on in an organization, how people are thinking, what their questions are. And so you, you got to kind of strive to do those kind of things. You got to encourage people to, to share information. And, you know, if it, if it's not useful to you, you know, that that's fine. It's just, it's just another, it's another data point for you, but you take it on. And, and, you know, I think one of the worst things that, you know, we live in a kind of an email environment. I think one of the worst things you do is, is, to say don't send don't send the emails of the boss no that's not it i mean you got to be got to be willing to you know the leaders got to be willing to absorb that kind of stuff you got to underwrite that that they're willing to take on this information and not uh, not uh, bite people back i'll tell you the most perhaps i will go ahead and say this the most impactful discussion i ever had between senior and subordinate was i was visiting shaw air force base and this probably would have been in early 2017 i sat down with a I'm an army officer. I'm an infantryman, ranger. I sat down with with a small group of F-16 pilots, and you know there were you know everywhere from from a young captain, Air Force captain, to maybe a lieutenant colonel. So very you know fairly fairly junior to you know kind of mid grade leaders. And we were there. Some of them had just returned from from flying over Syria. Some were heading back over into the Middle East to do some missions for us. And and, uh, and we just kind of wanted wanted to get the perspectives on on their experiences and just see what the questions they had and just get to know them a little bit. And one of the first uh, people that spoke up was this young young. F-16 weapons weapons officer here, who what he he had just returned from from Syria, flying over Syria, and what he wanted to talk about was he wanted to talk about his interpretation of kind of the rules of engagement and actions that he was taking to protect our people on the ground, and what he wanted to make sure was that he was aligned with me. In terms of my understanding of what what of, of what what he was doing, he wanted to make sure. First of all, he understood, understood the environment he was flying in because he's flying in an environment where that has you know Syrian air defense systems on the ground, has Russian you know modern jets in in the same airspace, has Iranian UAVs uh, that are flying all over the place, and so it's a pretty complicated pretty complicated airspace. And and you know part of his job is to help protect people on the ground, and he was very keen about trying to understand how he was applying decision making in those situations and whether that matched kind of what I was thinking as the as the combatant commander. I mean so here you got I mean this is the cockpit to the combatant commander in 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 about four feet right here of discussion. And uh, to me that is the that is the that is the feedback loop right there. And uh, and in understanding that and and frankly we were pretty we were pretty aligned frankly in terms of my expectations because he said hey in these situations this is when I would take some action. Would that was that in was that what you were kind of thinking? Yeah that's exactly what I was thinking.
So, you know, that to me is, is what, what we're really striving for. I'm not trying to cut out layers of the, of the, of the chain of command. That's not, that's not good either. But when you get alignment like that, then, then I think you really, then you, then you've got a feedback loop, then you've got trust, then you've got confidence. And, and what's more, what's really important is, you know, in terms for people to innovate or, or show initiative, you know, knowing that the leaders above them uh, are holding the risk. You know, there's a, there's a, I used to talk about this all the time with my leaders. There's an inverse relationship between where you hold, who holds the risk for operations and then who's making the decision. And what you want to try to do is you want to get to a point where the, the senior leaders are holding all the risk. You know, guys like me or, you know, commanders that are working for me. Hey, we got it. We understand we're, we're, we're holding the risk on this. And the, the lower level leaders at the, at the lowest competent level are actually making the decisions. And they feel empowered because they're not worried about the impact. They're not worried about, you know, getting blamed for doing something wrong or for exercising initiative or for, you know, seeing a situation and trying to exploit it. Because we've, we've talked about that and they understand the leaders have my, the leaders above me have my back. And so, you know, that's really what we were always trying to strive to do whenever, whenever we could. We weren't perfect in it. I don't want to give you the impression that we were, and we made mistakes along the way in terms of how we did that. But we were always trying to strive for that level of interaction between, you know, up and down the chain of command here. People felt empowered. They could take initiative. They could be innovative on the, on the battlefield. And knowing that the leaders above them were, were, were going to, were, we're watching out for them and providing them everything they needed to be successful. Wow, that's great. I, I, I have so many questions come to mind as you're thinking there. I think one of them, well, I've, I've got two main ones. I'll start with this one. Knowing that there's only so much that can be shared. I, you know, in my consulting work all across the Department of Defense, I have had just a real fascination with what the Joint Special Operations Command has been able to accomplish. And Obviously, without oversharing there, I'm interested, you know, I'm interested in what you think makes that command so special and the the capabilities of the operators there in the special mission units. Well, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, first and foremost, is what you just mentioned there. It's the people and uh, the people that come to the organization and what uh, the Special Operations Command and most of its subordinate organizations have been able to do is to be is to have a have a process of selecting members into the organization that has been well refined and 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 adhered to over a long period of time so everybody not not only does everybody go through a common kind of a common pipeline kind of assessment process into the organization but but it kind of creates a, a shared bond here in terms of so you you know what you're you're getting into and that's more than just how many push-ups you do, how fast you can run. It's a psychological profile. So you kind of understand the makeup of the people. You understand how that person is going to interact with others in the organization. It's having a real good, real good, uh, real good picture of the people that are coming into the organization. I think the second thing is uh, just the culture is, is the culture of the organizations in the special operations community. I mean, the overall, you know, kind of motto, if you will, of special operations, they, you know, we, we refer to them as the quiet professionals. So, you know, in that very short phrase, what is, what, you know, professionalism implies a, a level of competence and, and excellence in, in performing your job, but it also, in being quiet means when you're not, you're not worried about seeking uh, the glory, the credit for, for things, you're more 
more inter- interested in, in in the mission. There was a there was a quote one of my one of my SEAL commanders just always share with me the the deed is all, not the glory, and that's what he used to tell his that's what he used to tell his guys. The deed is all, not the glory, and uh, and uh, you kind of got to inculcate that into the into the into the idea into the into the uh, you know the culture of of the people in the organization, you know. And then I would say you know I say the third thing is the. The, the special operations community has has had some priority and it's had uh, good access to resources and has made good has made good use of that I think and and you know has developed a level of of competence and expertise that not only has served them well but I think has generally served the the broader military force well I mean when you look at you know tactics that we use uh, in, you know in, in villages clearing buildings and just you know basic basic drill kind of things i mean they, they've largely refined that and, and shared that with everybody but they've also had bigger impact you know you know under under general mccrystal the jsoc community took on took on a major a major focus on kind of refining the targeting process and what that meant and, and that wasn't just for what they were doing it was how everybody that integrated into it was so a different way of thinking about network on network uh, warfare um, and, and really, really drove things and really, and, and so they had the latitude to do that. People supported that. There was leadership over them that, that supported that. So there were a variety of, you know, factors. It's people, it's culture, it's, you know, it's, it's resources and, you know, it's, it's uh, a leadership orchestra uh, uh, architecture over them that supports people doing that kind of stuff. That's great. You know, I, it actually kind of leads me back if we're working up your principles to the one you started with. I think my my big question about trusting instincts is we do get so many, you know, if you're in charge, whether it's a, a company a, in the military, other folks, when you're in charge and the buck stops with you and there's a lot of people with different opinions and there's a lot of people who are passionate about their opinions and and, you know, you don't have a crystal ball that works to be able to tell the future. I'm interested on those big, big decisions, how, what it looked like for you to navigate this line of like considering other people's opinions enough, but trusting yourself enough and, and kind of how you walk that, that balance beam. Well, I think, I think, you know, one, I think you have to have, you have to have a decision-making process that supports all of that. And you have to rely on your staff. I did. I relied on my staff to kind of help me, help me through that. And and you know I like the idea of uh, of interim updates and and sharing information along the way. You know, again, kind of the feedback loop idea here, where you're you're kind of continuing, you're informing the process the whole way through. So you're, you're getting that you're getting that that in there. But you know, I, I do think you have to have a. Uh, have to have a decision-making process that allows you to to take to take all of that on. I would also suggest to you that you know what was as important to me. Well, and then before I get to this, here, and I'll, I'll make a note here. I want to come back to this here. Is you know, and the and the decision-making process is is not not being in a rush to get to a decision. You know, sometimes you do. Sometimes you have to. You have to move quickly. And but I think you know part of the acme of leadership is understanding when you when you need to make the decision. Is now the time I need to make the decision, or do I have a little bit more time to consider the ramifications and get a little bit more information? So I think that's a that's a big part of it as well. And I and I do th- and I do sense a lot of that is. Uh, is a little bit of the hair on the back of your neck kind of stuff is when do we need to make the decision in terms of something with that the the 
third point I would just make to you is that I think you have to, you kind of have to inform this all along the way. I, I talked a little bit about feedback loops, but one of the most important things I did as the CENTCOM commander, I did it as SOCOM commander, to some extent as a JSOC commander, because I'd seen others doing it. I thought it was a really good technique was, you know, you got to sit down and talk through issues without the burden of having to make a decision about things. You know, just, you know, I mean, there's a, we, we're talking about the Middle East here, and I shared with you some of the un, deep underlying tensions of the region here. I mean, there's, there's tons to think about all the time in this area. And so sitting down with the intelligence staff, for example, and, and deep diving into a particular intelligence matter, you know, and, and, and getting into the intricacies of it and, and, and forming your, 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 your database and, you know, building some experience and talking with the people that are experts on it, I think helps make you a, help, helps make you a better instinctual leader. I did the same thing on, with, with the people in my plan shop that were responsible for our plans, policy, strategy, development, and just, just sitting down and talking about, you know, issues and other things we had and, and, and trying to, you know, understand the point that they were making, but then also make sure I, I understood that kind of fit into my stuff. So I, it isn't, you have to do it over, over, over a long period of time. It isn't, you know, I think, you know, operating just instinctually saying something uh, without kind of a basis of and a and a and a, and a you know basis of, ex, of of experience and expertise and knowledge and you know backing that up I think could could be dangerous and so a leader has to has to help help his instincts by adding these other tools into it that that make it help help it be more accurate and more precise in, in making decisions. That's great. You know, I know I want to be respectful of your time. I know you've got other things coming. So maybe to wind down here, I think one of my favorite questions I've been able to ask guests over the years here is if you could go back and give a younger version of yourself some advice, what do you think it would be? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Well, first off, I would say be be patient. Be patient. You know, as a, as a, as a young officer in the early 1980s trying to, you know, find my way in the organization, I, like probably many others, were very anxious to you know, to, to move through the different gates of leadership and, 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 and you know, to, to get more opportunities. And, and uh, you know, I, I, think, I think being patient and, and allowing, allowing, allowing the experience to happen, I think, is, 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 would be a really important, important thing I would try to remind myself. The second thing I would try to remind myself of is the importance of balance. You know, balance in your professional life, balance in your personal life. And, uh, you know, for a lot of the reasons I just told you, I mean, I got married two weeks after I graduated from West Point, went to Germany and my first time with a brand new wife, you know, and we were newlyweds and a year later we had a kid. So, you know, we did everything that you would expect people to be doing in that situation. But, you know, um, trying to find balance in your, in your, in your own life between your professional pursuits and your personal family pursuits, I think is a really important thing. And I, and I'm, uh, I'm not, I didn't do this well all the way. And it took, a, it was, it was, it was hard on my family because I didn't do it well. Uh, and it took me a while to, to figure out how to balance it. And along the way, I, I recognized the people are what people below me were watching how I was doing this uh, because they were struggling with it as well. And so I wasn't, I wasn't even setting a good example for everybody in terms of this. And so, you know, something I would, I would, I would tell my younger self is to, is to get, get a grip on how you, how you, how do you, how you balance your life between, you know, your professional pursuits, your 
personal pursuits, your spiritual pursuits, other things that you that that are important to you, and 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 look at how you how you try to how you try to balance that over over time. So, when you got to the point in your career where you thought you were doing better at that, is there anything you would tell yourself, or what what helped you, what helped you deliver on the good intentions to have more balance, or just any any kind of maybe quick thing for for the rest of us that want to work on that? Well, you know, I, I think I think what I started to do is I started to espouse the importance of it. So, you know, by the time, you know, I'm 15 years in my career, I'm almost a battalion commander. I'm, you know, now I have, you know, command of a lot of soldiers and a lot of family members that come along with that. And, and so, you know, I have, I had a great, spouse. I have a great spouse who was with, has been with me through the whole thing here. And so I think, you know, what, what I actually started to do was you actually started to, you know, put something behind the talk. Uh, you started to invest time in programs to help take care of families and make sure that, you know, there were, you know, that, 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 that aspect of it. And then you also, I think we began to do things in the organization that were, that were focused on making the experience more positive and rewarding for everybody that was going through it. You know, one of the, one of somebody challenged me one time in a good way, you know, as I was kind of getting ready to go into a position as a battalion commander, says, you know, how do, how do you have organizational fun? How do you make it fun for the whole organization? I mean, you're, you're the commander, you're, you're trying to get missions done and you're going to be successful. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to probably going to go on and do other great things here, but how do you make it a really positive experience for everybody that's going through while you're doing it? And that really caused me to think a lot about how you did that. So you got to think about how you do organizational things and how you, you know, how you, how you make the experiences, you know, for military guys, how you make the experience of serving your country, a, a positive and rewarding one for those who are serving with you and their families, by the way, as they go through so they remember it. And, and, you know, fortunately, I was so glad that that person asked me that question, because I would never really thought about something like that, but he did. And, and I kind of lodged in my brain housing group there and, and and thought about it a lot and then hadn't had opportunities to do things that I think made it more positive, made it more rewarding, made it fun for people to go, God, I enjoyed I enjoyed being in that organization right there. That was a lot of fun. That was a great part of my life right there. And and so, you know, that to me that was when I actually started doing better at, at balancing. Well that's great. Well thanks for sharing that and and thanks for having so much time for us here we, we appreciate it great uh great to be with you jess and and enjoy the discussion i i always consider these a little bit therapeutic for me so it's always fun to always fun to talk about this and it's an important topic and i appreciate you reaching out to me and give me a give me an opportunity to chat with you that's fun thanks everyone for listening